Chrissy on the Enneagram journey. Every family has a kid who won't eat. My kid brother had not eaten voluntarily in over three years. Oh, Randy, don't play with your food. Eat it. Oh, Starving people would be happy to have that. You stop playing with your food or I'll give you something to cry about. You better stop fooling around with that and eat it or you'll be sorry. I broke my collarbone in a football game. There was Dad up in the stands giving me the old B-tough. So I played two more downs before I passed out. My date, Mary Jo Klumski, left the senior dance with another guy. Broke my heart. 2 a.m. at the kitchen table, my old man's telling me, eat the sandwich and forget about her. Feelings. <laughs> I didn't even cry at his funeral, you believe that? The guy was my whole world. Not a tear. Everybody looking at me like, like I didn't love him. But he knew. It manifests very differently. And so I think the questions to ask sometimes are, how do you, how do you know that you're an eight within the context that you were in? And, and to me, that's not just a cultural, ethnic, racial question. I think that's, what, how did you, mm -hmm. how does it manifest given um, your gender? How, how does it manifest given your sexuality? How does it manifest in all these other ways? And I think the more stories we hear and the more opportunities that people are given to answer that question, it gets broader and it gives more space to say, you know, I'm a three, but that's not how I, that's not how I present at all. And, but I know I'm a three because of X, Y, Z reason. You are now listening to the Enneagram Journey podcast. My name is Joel, and today's guests are Alex and Michelle Choi from Portland, Oregon. Alex is an eight, and Michelle's a five. They've been journeying with Suzanne for several years now, uh, participated in different LTM cohorts, and their home church community there in Portland, Amago Day, hosted us and the Enneagram Journey Toward Wholeness Tour. Today's episode is the live podcast that we recorded. We're going to hear about their introduction to the Enneagram how they've used it in their marriage as a five and an eight, good subtypes talk, good Q&A, good parenting talk, and really just an overall great time. If you listen to this and think, yep, that does sound like it was a great time, and I want to be a part of it, well then come on, join us, sign up for an upcoming tour stop, Denver in July, Birmingham in August, in September we're going to Charlotte, just visit lifeinthetrinityministry.com for all the information you need and to register and uh we'll see you there it'll be a great time denver's right around the corner so don't wait too long for that one but for now let's go ahead and listen to the enneagram journey podcast live in portland oregon we are about to start i'm going to give one gentleman past me going to the bathroom so it's like man okay let's give him a heads up so uh be so glad you told everybody <laughs> everyone goes to the restroom this is a shame-free space so Speaking of this space, I'm going to throw it over to Alex to welcome y'all, and he'll tell you why he's the one welcoming you. Uh, welcome, everyone. My name is Alex Choi. I serve as the executive pastor here at Imago Community, Imago Day Community. Uh, it's great to have all of you uh, to be able to host this uh, time. Uh, we got a chance to meet um, the Life in the Trinity ministry team uh, many years ago back when we were in L.A., 
it's been transformed. I'm sure as many of you have experienced uh, doing Enneagram work. And so we've had the privilege of kind of befriending the Stabile family and uh, just couldn't be more thrilled not only to have them, but all of you here to just kind of participate uh, in this with us. One question that was already asked once by that I bet the whole room wants to know. We're going to do this for two hours, roughly, and there's not, there's not a break. That being said, if you need a drink, a snack, smoke break, restroom, don't tell anybody. Apparently, you know, we don't feel good about letting people know that we go to the bathroom. But if you need to do one of those things, do it. It's not a big deal. This is a live podcast. It's not a, you know, we are not in studio. And in studio, if y'all haven't ever heard us complain about it, in the LTM studio, every single day that we record, no matter what day it is, is when they're doing the yard work outside of the window. <laughs> so every single time, it's unbelievable. I have a new theory. I think the guys who do all the yard work want to keep learning about the Enneagram, and so they listen. <laughs> so I guess. Uh, so yeah, um, if people start trickling in and we need seats or whatever, if you can like point to one, not a big deal. And I know that this is a huge building and there are more chairs that we can find. Um, we want people to be comfortable. With that being said, did anyone come further than from Oklahoma? No? All right. Did anyone come from Oklahoma? Do you want to stand? There it is. Yeah. So there's the winner of that door prize. Uh, has everyone heard the Enneagram Journey podcast before? Is there anyone who has not heard it? That you're like, man, I came for this Enneagram thing with my friend and I don't know. All right. Well, that's good too. With that being said, I'd never start a workshop without oh, stop introducing. It. Stop it. Stop. You better stop. He's had a lot of fun with me today. You take it, but don't use my uh, you words. You literally said stop it. The reverence here. My life. Everyone give it up for, if I had my applause button, but the reverence here. So, so uh, You'll get to hear this spiel tomorrow morning, but he's good all the way through. So the reverence here. Also, Laura is here. Laura Addis, if you've been to any old team event uh, over the past six, seven years, uh, it's because Laura made that happen. And now, let's give it to the Anagram Godmother, and I'll let you introduce our two guests today. How will I introduce the two of you? Um, I'm fascinated by the way that we've been able to build our relationship when we see one another infrequently, but we don't seem to chat, right? Like, we don't talk about stuff that doesn't matter to us. So maybe that's how that all happened. Um, Alex is an eight and Michelle's a five and Alex has been in Joe's cohort and Michelle has been in mine and um, part of what we're going to talk about tonight when we get to it is that as an eight and a five they use the Enneagram a lot in their relationship and they also have five children four girls and one boy and he's right in the middle so they've got him surrounded by good feminine energy, teaching him all the important stuff. And they um, have a lot to offer about how the Enneagram, when applied, helps them do life. And that's always kind of what we're looking for is, uh, okay, so now you know your number, now what? Right now they're, I don't know, 
hundreds of thousands of people who think they know their number but don't. So to be in a room with people who know their number, that's really cool. <laughs> and so we're going to really encourage Michelle. She's a five and an introvert with a lot of life experience, and she puts up with Alex. So that there's that. <laughs> and Joel, you know, and we don't always have a, a big plan. So Joel came and got me a minute ago and said, it's time to come kiss the babies. And I got in here and there were no babies. And now there's a baby. <laughs> yes, will you tell her that I'm coming for her at 9 o'clock if she's still here? <laughs> Welcome. And if she wants to help us, don't get nervous about it. You just stay right here. We've done a lot of things with babies in the room who are happy and unhappy. So you stay right here. And this is being oriented to the present moment what you just witnessed for Anagram teaching. We're doing a thing, and a baby walks in, and now the baby is the focus of this. That's so. right. What can I say? I'm a big fan of them. Today, we got to have dinner, all of us, uh, before this started, and they told us about the first Know Your Number workshop that they went to. And it was hilarious. It was a riot. Could you all talk about that? But if you can just go ahead and redo lunch for us, please. Uh, sure. Well, I was pastoring in L.A. I had two cousins, but they're both eights. Oh, you hear that? <laughs> but yeah, two yeah, eights. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, exactly. That's right. But the fact that they're both eights oh, is big man. business. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, they had found, uh, they met Suzanne in San Francisco at a workshop. Uh, it was a little bit of smaller context. It wasn't a larger event, but a small intimate setting and it just was so helpful for their marriage. They just bought us tickets to the next event that was in L.A. So we just went. We had no context for what the Enneagram was. We just loved our cousins. We trusted them because they were so, uh, they were really ministered to by this, uh, just this wisdom. And so we get there. And Su I don't know if you guys know, the Know Your Number events, Suzanne starts with eight. So she doesn't go one, two, three, four. Or she doesn't go nine, eight, seven, you know, like, it doesn't work like that. She starts with eights. Uh, and then she kind of prefaced it by saying, hey, when I teach, I talk about the dark side of the number because we have an easier time connecting with our weaknesses than our strengths. And, um, and so she said, and of all the numbers, so some of you are gonna, you're, not like, you're not gonna like your number, uh, but the eights love their number. So she actually asked all the eights in the room to stand up, and I stood up. We were all smiling. <laughs> but when we were driving home, I told Michelle, and this, I'm being dead serious, I said, of course we like our number. Uh, we're the only number she said positive things about, you know? <laughs> and Michelle was mortified. She was like, you did not understand the context. Uh, those are all really bad things. And I was like, no. <laughs> you know, for others. And so that was kind of like, uh, yeah, I just kind of experienced it as an eight, walked away as an eight. And uh, that was at least the most memorable experience on my side, you know. Yeah. So I think it was interesting because uh, both of us actually took the Enneagram test that, you know, we're probably not supposed to take. Um, I scored as a five. And I guess, and even when I was at the cohort, there was a bunch of fives and we got together and for some reason, 
they all said, you are the most five person we've ever met. And this is coming from a group of fives. And so like, I couldn't understand exactly what that meant. Um, so all that to say is that's like, I wasn't surprised that I was, I found my number as a five, but for him, he tested as a seven and then came out as an eight. And for me, I think it was um, hearing him describe how he came to that um, and him being so excited about it just didn't make sense. And it took me a while to be able to like, okay, like it really is a way you see the world. Like it really wasn't. And that was probably one of the things that I learned the most about. And when I think when I heard from the five that that idea of like, you don't feel comfortable um, and your needs aren't a burden. Like these are all messages that I've felt were always there and that I wasn't enough, right? And so that I was like, am I a one? Because I don't feel like I'm enough. But then after hearing this idea that fives gather, gather, gather the knowledge and never feel like they're competent enough to actually share that, um, it just, it was a light that went off but it's still taking me a long time to process. So even coming here and this idea of doing and being here, like after being Suzanne's cohort, I told myself going in, I'm just gonna do what she says. <laughs> and I have. And if when only everybody. <laughs> <laughs> if only. And it has been such a blessing. Um, like, and it's like little things like, fives connect with your body do yoga and I'm like yoga okay like that doesn't make any sense and as a thinker I it has to make sense first but I did and there and even just this past weekend I, we did this yoga thing and I was like oh why don't I do this more often and there's just something that about being in touch with my body that is so healing for me and even this podcast when I heard it like even up until even now I don't know if you can tell my voice shaking, but I, everybody kept talking, are you excited? How do you feel? And I'm just like, I don't know. I don't want to have to think about it. I don't want to think about it, but I'm just going to do it. And I only, only because I trust Suzanne that I was able to like come into this space. But in that journey, there has been a lot of um, learning and feeling more of that burden to do and share without being an expert, which... I don't know how that's going to work out, but yeah. So that's kind of, I don't know if that answers your question, but. Perfect answer. So far, you're doing great. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, cohorts, if you don't know, are Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Her, fir her first cohort with me, she didn't talk that much <laughs> the whole time. I'd look back there, and she was just thinking, thinking, thinking. And so I think that's a good way for us to imagine that you came out of uh, Know Your Number adjusting and making space for what you heard and you came out Alex celebrating who you are and the fact that you're so great right that's right it's so great yeah. to be so great like me <laughs> and you know I say some pretty like what was the list of things that you said to Michelle when y'all got in the car that you thought were all so great about you I mean, like, the, the brutal honesty piece. So great. Um, yeah. And I, and I remember seeing a movie. I forget what it is. Maybe somebody here knows. But uh, they were saying something like, like uh, it was Jerry Maguire, where she said, I told you, 
when you get together with me, it's brutal honesty. And he was like, I think you put the brutal in that. Uh, but it was like that. I just took so much pride in the fact that, like, yeah, I'm going to tell you, you know, call a spade a spade. And I'm going to speak truth um, in love sometimes, but truth always. <laughs> so I felt, yeah, I felt like that was uh, especially coming from an Asian culture where we were, we we're generally a little bit more passive and won't necessarily speak our mind uh, in certain settings. And so I actually felt really proud about that. I think the other one too is just the energy that we get from what most people would consider a fight. Uh, I just felt so proud, like, yeah, I'm not arguing, I'm not fighting, I'm not, this is great, like we're growing. And uh, she was Meanwhile, like, Michelle's energy meter is going. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah. So those are at least two of the things that immediately yeah. jumped out that I was like, I was so proud of. To give an example that ties to Portland, it's been how many years did we decide since we were here? Probably like four. BC and AD, it's like pre-pandemic or we did it during the pandemic. So we came pre-pandemic and we were at a restaurant and I was like, hey, that's the restaurant we were at when this Enneagram 8 gave me a call and I, I stood away from the dinner this person started telling me, hey, I got I to gotta get your feedback about this because, man, me and the, the spouse are having, like, this big fight. And they proceeded to tell me about how the spouse's dad just died. And there's a lot of family stuff there. And this eight was like, so here's what I said. And then listed off all these things that were absolute honest things. Brutal. They brutal, were brutal. honest things. And, and I was, and this person's, you know, their spouse's dad just died. And it wasn't like, it wasn't brutally honest how much I loved your dad. It was the, you know, there are 10 other people that will die and I will care more about that death <laughs> than, than this one. And. That's an eight who hadn't been to seminary. <laughs> <laughs> it, but that, that was it. And we were talking about it. And it was that brutal, like, this person called and thought that they were, I had, I, I was in a good, healthy space <laughs> at the moment, you know, you know, and uh, I was like, that, that's all real terrible. Like, that, <laughs> like, you can't say that when people's parents are dying. Well, it's true. That was their response. But it's true. I was like, that doesn't matter even a little bit. Like, <laughs> you know, that's actually like a... Uh, now you know what it's like for me to have you around. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, this is debatable, though. I'm always right. Oh, uh, but, you know, one of the more, more painful moments, it was probably, um, you know, after you know, kind of pre-Enneagram life, post-Enneagram life, you don't see things the same. But when I look back on that moment, it was probably, uh, there was a time where Michelle's grandmother passed away, and we flew out from Boston to Los Angeles, and I was being an eight, just doing my thing. And I remember she just broke down and said, would you just stop and let me grieve? And it was probably, it wasn't at the time, but now looking back on it, it was probably the first little moment of, I'm not understanding how people receive me, how they're experiencing my energy. You know, we're driving and I don't, I mean, I don't even know what we were talking about, but I remember it was like, I'm just laying it on. I'm just, we're, we're getting somewhere or scheduling something and just how much that that presence didn't allow her to process a woman she loved and that we were here to uh, grieve 
you know, the loss of, you know, the passing on of her, uh, of her life. And so it was, that was probably like, as you share that story, that was an Enneagram 8 flashback for me as well. Let's talk a minute about the fact that um, both of you in different ways kind of struggle with feelings. One of you struggles with them a lot, and one of you struggles with them in a different way. But both of you... Um, Alex doesn't know which one you're talking about. I know. Though. I understand that. <laughs> That's why I tried to lean toward Michelle. This is a clue. I'm not complimenting you right now. <laughs> so... I don't know that I can tell you exactly what it's like in this friendship for me to be sitting across the table from Alex and for him to say, I got a feeling wheel. <laughs> I mean, it's like, y- you did? <laughs> yeah, he said. And it's made all the difference. So I'd love for you to talk about that. And then I'd love for you to talk about your relationship to feelings and how the work you're doing on it changes the time of disconnect between the two of you as opposed to when it was bigger time? Well, you know, being feelings repressed, I, um, it's not that I don't have feelings. I have a lot of feelings. I'm just either, either I'm unaware of them or I just convert everything into anger. So if I'm sad, I'm angry. If I'm angry, I'm angry. And so I, I, in some sense, have converted into a one emotion person. But then when I started going to therapy, uh, just because I just kind of reached that stage in my life where my family of origin issues had caught up with me and I could no longer escape or fake or try to be the aspirational Alex, but I had to deal with the actual version of myself, uh, as any good therapist were, uh, would, after everything I shared, so how did that make you feel? How did that make you feel? And at 150 bucks an hour, to not be able to tell her how I felt, <laughs> I was like, this is, this is a bad return on investment if we're going to do this. So I, I, uh, I you drove You got to love the ROI minutes. with your therapist. Yeah. I drove 30 minutes early. Uh, I literally Googled, what is a feeling? You know, because I just, I didn't know what they were. And I saw this little wheel, and I thought that was a little interesting. So, you know, it had colors on it and, and stuff. And so... I would drive 30 minutes, and I, and I still do this. I go early to a therapy appointment. I sit with the wheel, and I just circle uh, the things that I know I'm going to talk about and how they made me feel. And that was, uh, it's, and, and I would say this, I think one of the things about being an eight is that that repressed feeling, it never goes away. I have to start new every morning with that wheel. Uh, it, it really is. It's not like I'm like, you know, this artificial intelligence that's growing in its knowledge of it. I, it's a reset button every day. I have to go through it. It's just something that's part of my process now. Um, but I do wonder, when am I going to ever be in tune with it? When am I going to know? But it's just the reality, and so I have to discipline myself to do that. So is in the question for, that I want to ask you, and I'm, I, this could be just like off base, and you just say, yeah, no, that's not part of it. So it would seem to me that for all this time in your relationship, you knew that you were even though a five and an introvert, more on top of your feelings than Alex was. And then all of a sudden he can name all these feelings. What would you do with that? Oh, gosh. Um, I think, well, initially I was like, wow, that feelings will is very overwhelming. 
it felt overwhelming. Um, and it's again, I think maybe because he's not as in touch with the feelings, Mm -hmm. the way it comes out sounds very like methodical and logical. There you go. Which actually makes sense to me in some sense. And so it brought me back into the thinking through my feelings rather than feeling my feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, so it actually was like, oh, this is kind of cool. And I would think about feelings again, uh, which kind of goes to the first question, which was what, what's my relationship with feelings? And I think um, growing up, I think, so one of the things that clicked when during the cohort, you had said that fives have delayed feelings. And it just a light bulb went off because I realized whenever I was with friends or families, like I never like celebrated with people. I didn't like weep with people. Like I didn't have that. And I always thought it was a social thing. Like I was just not connecting with people and I don't have enough feelings and I'm just so not like what a cold person I am. But what I realized what I had done all my life is my feelings would come after, but they wouldn't make logical sense because this happened, but I'm feeling it like two days later and that doesn't make any logical sense. So I can't indulge those feelings because it doesn't make any sense. And so I would not feel like, and so I wouldn't indulge in feelings. So that's, I think that's how I was doing all of that. And I think that when that light bulb came up and then I was like, okay, I have to learn to feel my feelings even if they're later. And I think that's something that I've had to learn. But then when he started going through that, I started thinking through my feelings again, which I don't know. I'm still working through all of that. Sure. One of the things that I'm aware of in my relationship with Joe, and he's a nine, if you don't remember that, and I'm a two, of course. And I used to interpret the feelings of everybody in the family and then tell Joe what they were. <laughs> right? Because, you know, he's, pe- he's kind of dialed in sometimes and dialed not in sometimes. And so I, on the way home from a family event, I would say, did you notice this, 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 this feeling? And until he started saying to me, well, how did you feel about that? I didn't know that I didn't know. So I would just quickly say that the appearance of knowing feelings and being a feeling person and knowing what you feel and all that is frequently just appearance. Like, I, it's just appearance. And Joel's a seven, Laura's a three, and they, more than I, hear from people when I first teach them stances and start to say to aggressive numbers, you got to bring up feelings, that we get mail from people that says, why would anybody want to do this? <laughs> like, evidently this person on the front row said the exact same words. <laughs> like... Well, I love the... Yeah. Oh, on the way here. Yeah. Uh, oh, so you just said them. Why would anybody want to do this? Well, I love the, the phrase that she said, indulge feelings. Yes. Like, if they're therapists in the room, anybody therapist? Sweet. All right, we're going to have a good time. <laughs> if Whitney were like, it, it, she, it's, feelings are like food. Like, you don't deserve them. You don't indulge them. You, you get to have them. As someone who is more like you, <laughs> it's like, no, we indulge that. And I was thinking about when you were talking about, you know, the feelings wheel and your preparation for your therapist. So I'm, I'm early and new on my journey with a therapist. And I get caught in being thinking dominant during this, in a recent session, 
you know, I shared something and we're talking and he started talking and I was like, I know where he's going with this. And he, he doesn't like the feelings wheel. And I think it's, I don't know exactly why he's got his chart and uh color coded chart. Uh, it's a wheel, man. Um, and I was like, he is going to go fishing for the word loneliness. And I started thinking, like thinking about that instead of, and we talked about this later, but uh, instead of, so I'm thinking about, he's get, trying to get me to say the word lonely instead of thinking about my feelings or trying to bring up feeling. And that can be just a real uh, hamster wheel of, of thinking there. So It's fascinating too that, and you said it over and over without knowing you were saying it, that fives are thinking dominant and feeling supports thinking because they're doing repressed. And so it's a, it's a, it's tricky to know whether or not you're feeling your feelings or thinking your feelings or thinking about your feelings. And then you have to think through who deserves to hear, what, hear your feelings. And then you have to think about whether or not you're going to tell somebody who's a master at the wheel what you're feeling, right? Because it may not fit the wheel where, like all that stuff, you're thinking, which every step gets you farther from feelings except the feelings you have about what you think. And then I think... I think, and this is where I, I would love to hear your thoughts on this. As a five and a seven, I feel such kinship with five because of our lost childhood messages. And so then when we're working on this feeling and this thinking, but we can't talk to people about it. Either it's not, is this something important enough to talk to other people about and consume their time and I should handle it myself? Or I don't, you know, the you, I can't talk to the lost childhood message for a five, but of like, I need to, I need to handle this myself and get everything together. Then that tell her by what your message is. I don't know the exact words, but it's that I can't depend on other people that my interpretation is I can't depend on other people to take care of me. Mm-hmm. So when I'm doing all this stuff and then I have a question about it or I, or I just want to talk about it to kind of verbalize some of the thoughts and feelings, then I feel like I should, or I, th- or I think that I shouldn't. You I think. don't know. But. And, I, and I think what happens then for you is that you believe, not feel. It's not like you feel like your needs are going to be a problem. You believe that your needs are a problem. And all that's thinking stuff. See, I, uh, do you think that with the childhood messages, it's not about think or feel. It's just an understanding. I think both words aren't fair. It's just an understanding of the sky is blue. And this is what I should or should not do. And I'm motivated by it a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So my question is, if you know your subtypes and how that affects how you two relate to one another. Okay, before you answer that, let me talk about subtypes for a minute. Um, I generally encourage people to know the Enneagram for a while before they do subtype work. For a lot of reasons, the primary reason is because subtypes become a way of confusing other people about your behavior so you don't have to change it. So, you know, people say, why do you act like that? Well, because I'm a sexual too. That's why. Or whatever, whatever that is. So there are three subtypes for those of you who don't know subtypes yet. And they are social, sexual, and self-preserving. Some people talk about sexual as one-to-one, 
because it represents one-to-one relationships. But when you just say one-to-one, it takes all the energy out of the definition that it is sexual, social, and self-preserving. And um, essentially, self-preserving has to do with you and your relationship with you and you trying to take care of you. And sexual has to do with close relationships, not necessarily like mine and Joe's relationship, but relationships where intimate things are shared. And social is you and many people. And um, I used to have the time to do more work one-on-one when people ask for that or work with couples or business partners. And the reality is that subtypes are more of a problem in relationships than different Enneagram numbers. Different subtypes are a bigger mountain to climb than different Enneagram numbers. But you have to have a good bit of Enneagram work on board to be able to really understand how your subtype is acted out in your number and the behavior that you are into because of that. Okay, go. Uh, for me, I do know my subtype. Um, it's a sexual eight. I can't. I don't know enough about it, uh, the subtypes, in order to discern how it plays out in our marriage. But it definitely helps in just uh, my understanding with other eights. So a lot of times, like like, like uh, my cousin and her husband that I mentioned earlier, they're both eights, but we're all three different subtypes. And a lot of times when I see them, and I don't know if this is true, so I have a question for you too, is like, um, is the sexual eight the most like non-eight eight, or are they all equally eight? Because when I when I see other eights, I'm like, I do go through an Enneagram identity crisis for 24 hours once a year, um, and I think sometimes it's because I don't fit certain molds of eights all the time. It doesn't manifest in that same way, um, and so I, for me, it's helpful to know. Oh, there's different types of eights. And it helped me just to kind of hold in and stay there and not wonder if my wings are my numbers and my, my movements are my numbers. I just, uh, I go through that crisis once a year, so. Here's how I experience you as a sexual aid in relationship to Michelle. She's your point of reference. And so what you do when you're talking is, and then Michelle said, and then you tell a story, but Michelle suggested, and then you tell a story. Well, I let Michelle down. I didn't really let her grieve her grandmother. And then you tell a story. Michelle was taking care of the kids. She did such. I said, how are you all doing here? Well, Michelle has done great. That's your point of reference. That's a sexual subtype. That's amazing. <laughs> and so true, by the way. Very true. Um, I am a sexual five as well. So... I'm you know, people who don't understand the Enneagram who want the sexual subtype to be about sex, you know what that says about the two of you in this moment, right? <laughs> For people who hear this, they've made up a whole thing. <laughs> no comment. Oh, oh! Michelle said, we do have five kids. I think there's an Enneagram response in both of their things there. <laughs> No comment. We do have five kids. Uh, my wife did has done both cohorts now. Uh, she's excited to do the third one this next year. But she came home from the weekend. That was one of the whole weekends with subtypes. She gets home. She starts asking me about subtypes. Um, you know, I let her talk for a little bit, or she talked for a little bit. 
you know, and she asked me a question. I was like, here's the deal. All the work I'm doing is to be engaged in this conversation with something that you care about right now. Like that is the work for me as a seven. I have no clue my subtype and the work of developing my, my repressed center and managing my dominant center and acknowledging feelings in others. Like that is such a big part for me that I was like, that's, that's where I'm at right now. And you say five years for, I think I'm on a 10 year plan for, <laughs> for getting the subtypes. I'm good with that. <laughs> Because we've talked about subtypes, though, I do want to say this. First of all, I don't think subtypes are taught well by all Enneagram teachers. Some, but not all. The second thing I would say is that I don't think there's a lot of talk about changing subtypes. So I think most people believe that their subtype, once they identify it, stays the same. And that's not necessarily true either. And coming out of COVID there's a lot of subtype change. So there's a lot going on around subtypes right now. If you don't, if you don't already know subtypes and you're working on the, this book, if you're working on the work in this book and you're trying to manage your dominant center. This and book bring is up, the journey toward wholeness, yeah, by the way. Yeah, sorry. Um, and you're trying to manage your dominant center and bring up your repressed center, that's enough. That's a lot, and that's enough. Um. One of the things that you said at lunch that I, I pulled out my phone, I was like, jot down a little note here, switch over to my Remarkable, which I don't know if you've heard a podcast recently, but Remarkables are awesome. And I'm not getting paid to say that. I, sh- I, I got to stop until I hold out. It is one of the best things that's happened yeah, to us. I love it. But one of the terms you use is that you are trust challenged. What really caught my attention was you talked about even trusting Michelle. Can y'all talk about that? Sure. I um, I think what really resonated with me in the Know Your Number workshop was the distinction between, well, when Suzanne would point out the healing message and the wounding message that each number experiences. And I know that for me, I uh, one of the greatest gifts the Enneagram has given me is the the high degree at which and how easily I feel betrayed. And it's, everything's betrayal to me. I mean, like, it's, um, and it's just shocking now when I look back on how much it makes sense of all the different experiences I had growing up. And I think because of that betrayal, I don't feel like I can trust anyone. And uh, I remember Suzanne mentioned, uh, eights can maybe trust three people in their, three to five people their entire lives. And that has kind of been true for me. And so, oh, you said 10. <laughs> but you just decided I, uh, you were only going to trust three or five in yeah. real time. Yeah, I don't know. That's yeah. a big number. I'm not going with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and I think that um, it really affected our marriage because part of it was like um, kind of like innocent not trusting. So, for example, she would say something like, you know, uh, 90% of colds are exchanged through hands. And I would be like, that's ridiculous. <laughs> and then her brother would be like, no, it's true. I'm like, oh, that's so interesting. You know, and, uh, and so for me, that wasn't personal. It was just, if there's not validated by two or three witnesses, it's just, I don't eat anywhere unless not only there's four and a half stars on Yelp, and I know, personally know three people who's eaten at a restaurant. So it's just a, like, it's not personal to her, but then there were other times where it was 
deeply personal where I just had the hardest time trusting. And I would say this, the, the biggest place it came up was allowing Michelle to be part of and helping me define reality. Like I did not want to give her that power. Like, no, I will define what happened. I will tell you what I saw. And it just, I couldn't let go to help let her define my reality because she's a part of my reality. And um, it wasn't until, well, I, I was doing work, but um, Joe uh, Stabile, was, I was in a cohort with him, and basically he talked about centering prayer, which was a really powerful spiritual tool for me as an eight. And the reason why is I'm going to read together uh, his definition of centering prayer. It is the spiritual discipline of letting go. It is a wordless, trusting, opening of ourselves to the presence of God. It is intentional silence, restraining the wandering mind. The goal is to be aware that God is dwelling in you and to be totally open to God. Uh, and it says, resist no thought. A anyways, I, and he kind of mentioned that there's not going to be this mystical experience. And so uh, I, had, I really resonate with centering prayer because it's the way I practice trust. Um, I, I have to practice it. Otherwise, I can't, I can't do it in, in real time, in real relationships. And so I think that's been one of the biggest benefits now is that I trust uh, Michelle, and because her number is where I go in stress, I now know what it means to access the high side of five, you know, whereas before I didn't know what that meant. This is a really interesting topic for us because fives just don't walk around trusting everybody, right? Like I trust people till I have a reason not to. And you don't trust people till they give you some reason to trust them over a period of time, right? So how'd y'all do, how, how did you manage that business? Like when he was not trusting you, did you just in your head think, that's all right, I don't trust you either. You think you're right, but I know better. <laughs> Can I tag a second part of a question onto that? When you were, the example that you kind of gave there about colds and whatnot, you were teaching Suzanne on fives and the centers of intelligence that fives have feelings about their thoughts. And so like when, when I was told that story, I was like, oh, oh my gosh, I wonder if that was like heartbreaking for, and so that's my, that's my question. I was thinking about that. And, you know, you talked about Suzanne, the question earlier of how, how long is the disconnect? And that's, it seems like at those times there'd be a longer disconnect. Long question. So Alex and I were actually talking about this, like, in the car on the way here. A lot happened on the way here. I know. I know. There's a lot of stuff. I mean, <laughs> because we've been, you know, consumed by all of this. Like, what was one of the things between us, like, that I learned about an eight that was kind of um, affected our relationship? And it was that, that trust piece. And part of that, it was very tangible because... Uh, you had mentioned how they are constantly testing, testing everybody. And that was definitely what I felt throughout our marriage. He was constantly testing my love for him, and I had to constantly prove myself over and over and over. And that was sometimes very hurtful and a lot of times very tiring. Um, and so that when I heard that and knowing that, okay, that's just – he – 
that's how he functions in the world and that's how he sees things and it's not because he doesn't love me. That was such an affirmation of something that I was trying to convince myself of. But I think that gave me traction. Um, and so, yes. And then the feelings part of that, all of that was, yeah, I, my thoughts, you know, when you ask if how did I trust, honestly, like it was a, I thought through it. So when we got engaged, I told myself, yeah, like I've never had a boyfriend before that, never had any sort of relationship before that. And then I told myself, okay, this is, I, you know, our values line up, I, I believe in, and I'm going to trust. And no matter what, this is, I'm sticking to it. I mean, not that I was saying I'm like stuck, but in some sense, that's how I dealt with it, is I'm here. And no matter what, every, every, every relationship has ups and downs. And so I logically had to put myself in a position where I, in my mind, had to work that out all the time. And I think over time, after growing, it became more than just obviously in my head. But yeah, that's kind of how I dealt with it, definitely in the beginning. Yeah. It's so interesting to me, because I'm me, to keep hearing Michelle talk about being logical. It's like, you know, that comes naturally to her as a five. Logic, not my, not my thing. <laughs> and so I think it means, because I'm not logical and both of you are, and I'm not in my relationship with Joe, and I'm thinking repressed, right? So twos, feel and do and feel and do. And then, I, you know, there's thinking, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> But because logic is really hard for me, it doesn't soothe me to think that something's illogical because I have a hard time getting to that. Like Joel, sometimes I'll be upset about something and he'll say, that's just not logical. And my response is, well, not everything's logical. Well, it could be. <laughs> so, you know, I think when you can be logical, if you can get there and you trust then the distance of the disconnect is just shorter and shorter and shorter. You also get it if somebody's illogical, and Joe's logical, but I'm illogical, with just time. And then, you, then I just learn to trust the bigger thing of what we have instead of whatever is happening in the moment that I'm being, I started to say stupid about, but I wouldn't want to give him that to work with, would I? <laughs> What uh, what ages are your children? They are uh, twenty one, twenty, uh, <laughs> almost nineteen, and then uh, seventeen and fifteen. I've been on both sides, uh, or am am on one side now. I'm still on both sides of being parented by people that are not thinking dominant, and <laughs> and parenting children. <laughs> and parenting children that are not thinking dominant. You know, I look back. We, God gave us to you so you could work on your feeling center. I'm telling you. You know, I look back and I do it. I do something that they did uh, and still do. They still parent me, thankfully. Uh, and I do it from a different space of their feelings and orientation to time taking up like a full afternoon in redirecting me, if you will. And I look at my kids, and I like, and I'm trying my hardest to get them to be logical about 
and hey, do you understand? Like every every sentence is any like, do you understand? Do you understand this? Do you understand that? How do y'all? I don't know the and y'all haven't talked about like your children's anagram numbers or anything it, tonight. How do y'all find that balance in parenting as an eight and a five kids and walking those waters? Well, Alex always teases me and says I just lecture them for hours and hours on end, and they just tune me out. <laughs> That's good parenting right there. But let me. Joe let me, says repetition is the mother of learning, and I'm going with it. But here's you. the deal. Let me be clear because I lecturing depending on the center of intelligence that's dominant is completely different. Because I I catch myself. I'm like, oh my god, I've been talking for 20 minutes. Y'all didn't catch yourselves, and it wasn't logical. Yeah. Like we're having we're having fun, but but it, do it I is, look like I'm having fun? <laughs> It is heavy on the feelings and heavy on the walking through. And when I, as a seven, am thinking about the future, and it's like, and the logical of like, I did this wrong. You're right. There we go. We got the afternoon ahead of us. <laughs> yeah. hey, the thing that you that that you are leaving out about your beautiful bride and me is that we are verbal processors. So we have to keep talking until we are finished. And that's what I, that's what I want to hear from them about, you know. Yeah. So he can go home and say to Whitney, <laughs> Alex and Michelle don't have to talk this long about something. No, I... <laughs> <laughs> uh, no that comment. Is not no it. comment. That is not it. Uh, but, um, you know, one of the things I noticed about Michelle, and it really is that she is my, my point of reference, uh, and um, especially in the home. Um, and she grew up in a, a much healthier family environment than I did. And, you know, one of the things I noticed is that Michelle, it's really interesting because I don't know that fives are necessarily by nature nurturing, but Michelle somehow found a way to use that puzzle solving that... Um, deep interest in complex things, she somehow applied that to our children. And so she would draw, and then all the complexities and the nuances of who they are, what they do, why they do what they do, they could really break it down. I think so what was really good is Michelle was great at um, highlighting and nurturing the individual that they were. And I was really good, I have no patience uh, like everybody's gonna eat the same thing, you know. Every, like it's just same, same, same. So I was kind of good at the. All right, now let's cut it out. We gotta, we're gonna move forward as a group, and so there was kind of this individualization as well as um, kind of like, like you know, you know, like let's let's get in line and let's just let's just march forward together. And it's not gonna, we can't accommodate everybody. Uh, I felt like we both benefited from that perspective, and we definitely had to parent together. Because uh, it, it was, yeah, my eight side would have, it would have been rough. I mean, it was rough for our kids, so. If you want the title of a New York Times bestseller, should the children eat the same thing? <laughs> God, the second you said that, I was like, they, they absolutely should. Like that. What? <laughs> oh, my gosh. I'm clearly not the only one. Got to lock down that URL tonight when we get back to the hotel. 
when I um, got to a point where I was traveling more and meeting more people and uh, my audiences got bigger and they were more diverse, I began to encounter over and over and over people sharing a story with me about a story with me about their number and saying, but I don't think that means I'm not that number. I think it's just a cultural difference. So you said that you were really pleased and proud of yourself for doing the work you've done in your cultural context. And so what I'm learning is that I teach things that are not true for everybody. And while I think the Enneagram is still a common language for us globally, should we know it well and know how to use it, that doesn't mean it's going to always fit. It's like subtypes. There's differences in everything, and there are racial and cultural differences in each number. One of the things I've always taught that I just was sitting here thinking, I can't imagine you doing that, so I'm going to find out if you do it, is that I say that fives, when they are impatient and feel like they disagree with what's happening in the room, they lean into sarcasm and cynicism. Do you? I'm definitely cynical sometimes, a lot of times, right? (laughs) Um, Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I th- yes, like sarcasm is definitely something that I, I'm not so sure that I'm that sarcastic, but I, sarcasm is definitely something that I think is funny and I, that I can like, which again, I think most people when they like, like you said, like, I don't think, yeah, you don't seem like somebody and I don't think anybody would like the thoughts that kind of go in and like, but I do like that side is definitely there. So glad. I've never never met a five that wasn't sarcastic and cynical at some point. So I'm. Well, Suzanne, you can't. Can I share something about? So as I was reading about the aggressive stance and the eight, and how eights want that control, and then when they can't get that control, they get stressed, or they go into that lust. They go deep into that lust, and I have found that one cultural nuance is it's true and kind of not true at the same time for me. And that is, I have found as an Asian American man, I, I don't try to exert control over, my, over people or situations very often. And I think most people who work with me on staff would acknowledge that. But where, where I am an eight, so that makes me sometimes wonder, am I an eight? Because like, if they always need that control, then, then maybe I'm not an eight. But where I am an eight is that culturally, I surrender that control to somebody else but it drives me crazy so I surrender it and then it makes me miserable and so I I, it's been it's hard for me to take agency for myself and that or to take some healthy measure of that control back but that's where I would say like for me that feels cultural uh, experience of being an eight you know that's very helpful this might be helpful to you Joey our oldest who's an eight says uh, that she doesn't have to control the people. She has to control the scene. That's a big difference, so I'm really learning from that. You know, have y'all, have y'all found that um, people kind of like you like you are? And when you start to do some good Enneagram work and some good work on yourself, then people kind of, people who are close to you kind of say, what happened to you? What's wrong with you? Don't ever use my name when you answer. 
them, please. <laughs> but it is true, per, more, I think more with eights than with any other number, that we don't want you to be an eight until we want you to be an eight. Yeah. yeah. And with sevens, it's we want you to stop being funny and entertaining until we want you to be funny and entertaining. So there's no support for either one of you to really change that much. And with threes, the other aggressive number, there's no support for them to start feeling everything because it means that they won't get as much done as efficiently and as effectively as they did before. So one of the places where this becomes quite a journey is that it is an individual journey because people like you the way they know you and the way you are utilitarian for them. You can go down with every number also for that. Sure. With yeah. nines, when they get assertive, it's like, pipe down. Yep. Twos, when they stop, when you don't show up with the casserole, where's the casserole? And so on. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really big on casseroles, I guess. I don't know. And I think that's like a, a very healing word when this idea that eights are the most misunderstood. Yep. And I remember when Michelle was at your cohort, uh, each night we would talk and, you know, she would just download all the things she was learning. And there was one night she just, it was so hard for her to talk because it was the four and the eight uh, as you covered them. And she just, uh, it like a true broken compassion for me and for our daughter who's a four. And it was just like all the things you go through being in that place. And so it was a, a, a I, I do feel like that. It's, you, yeah, you want, you don't want them to be an eight until you need them to be an eight. And so I, I definitely feel that, especially in church settings. Yeah. Right, because in, in corporate America or if you're in different spaces, you can manifest your eight a little bit more and not get fired, you know. Um, whereas in ministry, and then my culture, there's so many things that are teaching me to restrain the eight uh, until it's like, you're, yeah, they turn to you and like, like bring it, you know. And so then in stress, you go to five and you just withdraw, yeah. right? Yeah. Just an example of this. I don't know if this is, I hope it's not offensive to fives, but like, uh, but a picture of this is when I was in L.A. Um, before okay, we stop stepped for a down, second. Yeah. I'm going to teach. You won't forget what you're going to say. So did you see that? He said, okay, I want to tell you this. I hope this isn't offensive. You see that point of reference? It's always right there. Just watch for it. It's always right there. <laughs> so you're really carrying the relationship, just so you know. <laughs> no, it, it's true. I know. It's so, and you know, I don't know that we ever talked about it like in that way because until Suzanne said it, I didn't realize how much it affected, which is the question I wanted to ask you yep, gotcha. in this podcast is what about me? It is as an eight, what brings her and pushes her into her stress uh, because of who I am in that Enneagram wisdom? That was one of the questions I asked, but you answered it in part with this idea that, like, you know, as a sexual eight, she's the center, and so it's, I pull her into that center too, and so it's like, yeah. Can, before you put Enneagram wisdom on it, can she answer that question? Yeah, the energy and all the doing that comes with it. And uh, and he's an extrovert, so it's, uh, and his job, just all of that. He has so much energy for it that even, like, the way he experiences it and then pulls me into it, I feel like I didn't 
do anything, but I'm already drained. So that that's one of the the harder parts of that dynamic. No, and I, I actually noticed that a lot too because yeah, everything my solution for everything, especially when you share your struggling, is let's let's work on let's do stuff. And it just that measured energy yep. when she's done, she's done. Yep. And let's for me don't do stuff. Yeah. yeah, let's not do stuff. And that was odd for me because there are things that energize me. So if my level goes down and I have coffee with a church member, that energy goes right back up. But for Michelle, every bit costs energy, and then she's done, and then the energy restarts again the next day. I did not understand that until we talked. We started doing the Enneagram work. And so, yeah. That whole movement for me to a five was the most extreme when uh, being an eight, it created a lot of tension between me and elders at my last church, and then also me and staff. And then to add to that, I'm Gen X. Uh, I was working with an all-millennial staff with a church that was 90% millennial. And uh, this, that generational struggle, it just started to really take a toll on me. And again, I don't trust anyone. And so what I did was I, I moved my desk into our bedroom and for at least three months would not leave the bed. I, I would work from my little safe spot mm -hmm. and I withdrew from everyone. I wouldn't go into the office. I would, I would go in for meetings. I didn't cancel meetings, but I would, uh, if it wasn't a meeting, I would go right back into that safe space. And, and it was just that thing that I needed, but it wasn't necessarily healthy. But uh, again, this is where the idea of accessing the high side of that number um, is something that I had to learn how to do. And for me, that was, will you trust your wife? Because she can show you the high side of that number. Mm -hmm. And often even uh, almost, almost I could lean on her for that. So in a sexual aid, that's what I do anyway. So, you know. As a parallel for me, I go to the stress number of my wife from seven to one. And because when you said that, I was like, that, hang on, that's what I do. What now? Um, but you said, and I'd like for you to clarify this, you said it's not necessarily healthy. We had this, uh, I've, I wrote out some copy for Suzanne and I was like, Hey, will you kind of prove this? And she goes, yeah, but this isn't, and it was about movement to stress. And she's, and she said, but I don't teach that. I was like, I actually think you teach exactly that. And that was that the move to stress is healthy like whether it's low side or high side or in between anywhere it you have to do it or else like staying staying in your number and further excess in the low side or that excess is both below low that's unhealthy making the movement no matter where it is is a healthy move and that's why the anagram is nothing but helpful is that and now you say that's it correct with the good and ones. the other thing i say is you can't take care of yourself without the number you go to in stress so if you're avoiding that stress number, don't, because that's the only way you can take care like of yourself. Like, what would it look like if you didn't do those things? Yeah. Like you said, you know, if you didn't move the desk, if can you imagine, I can't imagine the chaos or whatever would ensue. No, it's so interesting you say that because this past Thanksgiving, the last Thanksgiving, uh, everyone was, we were all supposed to go down to Los Angeles to visit family and celebrate Thanksgiving. And I, I was so stressed because there was just so much uh, to work through and do, and I was feeling fatigued. I just, 
the thought of going down and hanging out with family and friends and doing the whole thing and coming back. And then uh, it was a really important season for our, uh, our church ministry here at Imago. And so, uh, but I actually just told Michelle, hey, after I'm going to stay here by myself for a week. And she was like, I get it. I'll do it. And, and I actually, people invited me to Thanksgiving because they knew I was alone. I, I, I found out Jack in the Box is open on Thanksgiving. I had... Uh, <laughs> I had egg rolls and tacos and uh, their churros. And so it was, uh, but it was amazing that it was something that was critical for me in that next wave of ministry to have energy. And it was, it, and I was, I did not leave my house. Even I did DoorDash for Jack in the Box because I didn't want to drive. I did not want to go out. And the key to that, I think, in part is that it's counterintuitive. And so we got to all be open to counterintuitive moves on the Enneagram. Because the fact that it's counterintuitive or a little bit uncomfortable is kind of an indication that that's the move you need to make regarding whatever it is that you're dealing with or thinking about. Can you talk about the other side of that line and the counterintuitive move of five to eight? I've heard Suzanne say that she finds that to be the most bizarre of all movement on the Enneagram, that she finds that to be the most bizarre one. So when I found out that I moved to an eight and then to a seven, <laughs> I was like, oh, I'm really doing repressed because I need both to grow and to heal. I need to do, apparently. Um, and so um, I have been thinking about that a lot. I think um, I don't do it often. And I think part of it is some of it, I think, is, is the cultural like and just norms like as a Christian woman in an Asian household, five is everybody loves you. Like that's where you be. And it, when, and because I'm not usually even more so, like when I, then everybody's like, what happened? And I don't like that attention. So I don't think I've actually gone there very often. <laughs> um, what is ironic is there was one time that I did that in our, in our youth group like leaders meeting, and that actually was one of the reasons why he was um, attracted to me, is that one time where I actually stood up and said I know something. The exact story. Yeah, and he tells that story all the time, <laughs> and Remember I'm just like, oh, okay, like I'm sure nobody else liked it, but he did, and so that was great. Um, I should do uh, this more often. <laughs> maybe, well, maybe not. <laughs> I only need one. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> but, um, but um, I think um, I, I do know how I feel after. And I think I, what I feel after is really vulnerable and, and I retreat back so fast. And so it, it was really hard for me to understand the, that is, uh, I guess, a security move because afterwards I always feel so vulnerable. But I will say it has... I have experienced other people being blessed by, like when I've taken that step to like teach or do something, but it doesn't spur me on to do it because it feels vulnerable. My move to a, s a seven, I, that was hard for me to even discern, but I do realize there is something about that spontaneity and the, and also just to be able to enjoy things and to be grateful for things. And over the pandemic when there were so many people in my household all the time and nobody left for work or school and they were all there all the time. Um, I realized um, 
my escapes became like really silly things that I felt bad about because I'm like, okay, I have to cook, I have to clean, we've just moved, I should do all this stuff. Um, but I always knew I didn't have the energy for it. And then I would, I started <laughs> like reading like webtoons with my kids because they did, you know, which just sounds so silly, but it was so much fun. And I would just get sucked into it. And I just, I needed that because I needed something to suck me into something. And then what ended up coming out of that was I actually ended up having some great conversations with my kids, which I don't know if it's supposed to be a byproduct of when you go into that, but that was something that I just needed. And it had to be something that wasn't productive because I realized when it's some, I always felt the need, okay, if I'm going to do a hobby, it should be productive. I should, it should it should add to my life it should add some kind of knowledge or add something that I can I don't know service the church with or my children with but it was something that was like purely like it had no real value and I needed that and it was yeah you know and I think like the intuitive versus the counterintuitive I see this like for example um because Michelle's energy is measured when she's done she's done and so like when we uh we have a large family, so there's a lot of dishes. There's a lot of every meal is like, it, it's pretty chaotic in the kitchen. And for me, I'm like, let's let's get this done before we go to bed, because I'm I'm gonna sleep in. But for Michelle, it's like, you know what? Let me let me save it for the morning for two reasons. Number one, I'm done. I'm really done. And the second thing is, is that she felt like saving it for the morning, being doing repressed, and just having that little thing to do jump started her day so that she wouldn't stay in that doing repressed state. And so it was that so... That is gold. Yeah. That's gold. Yeah. Because I tried doing it at night, and then I realized the next morning I didn't want to do anything. Yeah. I mean, I didn't have much to do, but I thought my whole day. Yeah, yeah. You got extra yesterday. I'm off today. Right, yeah. You said there, when talking about the move to eight, how it uh, kind of left you feeling vulnerable in your teaching, Suzanne, around movement to, you call the movement to your security number, the place for holistic healing. Is that space even available without vulnerability? No. There is no magic that comes with healing that doesn't require knowing and naming what needs healing. Like, you you can't get anywhere with, I'm feeling a little off. That doesn't get you anywhere. Or something's not quite right between us. That doesn't get you anywhere. You you have to be able, you can't change what you can't name. And so you can't heal what you can't name. And in naming what you're lacking or missing or what you desire to heal, somehow in the naming you also in that moment are aware of your part of the problem and that it's not just somebody else. And so then you don't put on somebody else work that is yours to do. They have their part in the relationship to do, but that's not automatically then on them. I think that's the power of the feelings, well, actually, is to actually name the correct thing so that you can begin that work of either healing or overcoming, you know, something bad. For those of you who are dying to know about the feeling wheel, if you Google it, you'll, <laughs> then you'll have one too. And if you, Joel can probably tell you right now where you can get the feeling wheel pillow that comes in two sizes. I just typed it in on Amazon. I find the story to be kind of funny. We were talking feelings wheel something, and I saw a 
Courtney Perry, she's been on the podcast before. Uh, if you you mentioned yoga earlier, if you're into yoga and the Enneagram, the Enneagram, Enneagram with a Y at the front of it, that's her social media and her what she does. I saw her do a post on Instagram about the feelings. Wheel. I was like, well, that's got to happen. So type it into Amazon, feelings wheel, it pops up and it comes up with different options. I click what I think is the best one that I want, you know, I order it to be shipped at home. Get a box, Amazon, open it up, pull it out, and it is this rinky-dink 9 by 9 pillowcase that's not stuffed, and it's just a, a pillowcase with a feeling wheel on it. <laughs> and I was like, what in the hell is this? <laughs> and Wendy walks out, she's like, what are you doing with my pillowcase? And I was like, what, what is this? I ordered a feelings wheel, ordered it this size. She goes, well, I also ordered one. And I got this one that I can, you know, stuff it myself and do it my way and make it my own. All the one things that she would do with it. So then in a couple of days, mine comes and it's like four feet by four feet. It is. So, oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I was like, this is the feelings wheel that I, that Joel wanted. So, but yeah, just having feelings wheel uh, pillow on Amazon. I'm a two, I'm a verbal processor, so I had to write down my question or we'd be here all night. Um, so since COVID hit, everyone around me is dealing with their own daily, unseen, unpredictable thing. It may not be chronic illness as I experience it, but when I talk to other people, their verbiage and their descriptions of their lives is very similar to living with chronic illness. So here's my question. Can you go through the numbers and state how each may struggle with chronic illness and any potential tools to help increase their awareness with the hope that some of those tools could also benefit the population at large who are feeling the chronicity of this pandemic? Maybe. Um, I'm going to start with twos because I just want to add one thing to that, and that is that I get it that we think that um, our concern about asking for help is that we'll inconvenience somebody or that we don't know how to be needy or all that. But I think there's also another layer of that, and I think that that layer is, and this really applies to y'all talking about vulnerability too, it's just in different numbers. What if I ask for help and I don't get it? That's the big trick right there. If I ask for help and I don't get it, then I don't know if I know how to live with that. So I would rather just not ask than risk that vulnerability in asking. Um, the best I can do is give you an overall statement about each number because otherwise it would take, like, you know, that on, in all nine numbers would be uh, the night. So here's what I'll say. For ones, there, there is a right, a good and right and holy way to deal with whatever you're struggling with. And there's only one right way. So then the, the holdback is I have to ask for help the right way. I have to be sure I need it. I have to go through all the things. Like I, 
all of that. And they have a nagging voice that says, and what in you is the reason that you find yourself in this position in the first place? So it's like, this is your fault, and you're asking other people to help. That's what the kind of stuff the voice would say. For threes, I, I think the difficulty in asking for help is multifaceted because um, it's inefficient, frankly, and that is, the biggest, that is the biggest thing for threes. If I ask you to help, so, so I'll just use a perfect example because Laura and I work together and have been working together for years. And I would bet that there are times when Laura thinks, you know, I'm, a, I'm just going to call and ask Suzanne about this. Uh, nope, don't have time. <laughs> like, like, I'd like to know what she thinks, but I don't have time for her answer. <laughs> right? So that's where Alex has given us something to work with when he says, I wasn't aware of how I'm coming across to other people. So one of the things that I'm trying really hard to do with Joel and with Laura is not verbally process with them, but do my verbal processing and then tell them, right? Because that's a responsible way for us to work together. And so I think threes have to really need help, and they have to be willing to expose themselves as not being successful at something without help, and that's really big. And then they got to be willing to give you enough time to be the helper. And that would be a lot to get over. Fours, I think, are fully aware that they know how to bear witness to pain, and we don't. And fours don't want to be fixed. They really don't necessarily want help. What they want is for you to be with them in their pain or in their struggle or in their need. And we're not good at that. Like, we're, that's not how we're put together, so we, we really don't do that well. Can I share one of my favorite Anagram 4 stories? Sure. A guy named Trey, Anagram 4, did some groups at the Mike Center. What he said was, and I think applies here, he goes, me as a 4, when you tell me that you understand, I immediately know you don't understand. Right. Like, the fact that you said you understand means you don't. That's it. And that's it. Yeah, so that's just cutting me off. Yeah. I get it, man. I'm in that situation too. No, you're not. Uh, you're not me, and no, you're not. So for fives, it's this. I wouldn't mind having a little help with this, but I don't want to share feelings about it. Like, I don't want to get into it with you. If, if you could, you know, my best friend is a five. My mom was a five. And it's, it's kind of a, I'd like for you to help me with this, but let's don't talk about it. It just takes an awful lot for a five to ask for help. And the reason for that, Joel brought up earlier, and that's because their lost childhood message is your needs are not a problem. So, like, if you haven't gotten that message that your needs are not a problem and you're going to share a need with somebody, then that doesn't fit together in any way. Sixes are um, very prescriptive in how they want to be supported and in how they want to be helped. So, like, they might tell you what they're struggling with or tell you that they need some kind of support. But they want it to be the kind of support that they want. They want you to do, in, in these parameters, what they want you to do. And they don't want you to put things on them 
that they don't want to do. It's like you can make a suggestion with nothing attached to it. But expectations, not, not a good move with sixes. And, and by the time sixes can articulate what they need, it was yesterday when you had coffee and asked if they needed anything. So they missed the boat, and they're probably not going to call you and, and tell you that, unless they've done a lot of work. We got to be in a room with two sixes doing a lot of great anagram work recently, and I loved, I, I wrote it down, and I'll butcher it without it here in front of me. They talked about how when they ask people questions, they're not really asking. What they're doing is they're doing a survey. Like, they don't care what you're, what you're saying back. They're just taking in the information. It's a survey. It's not a, what do you think about this because I can consider what you think. I'm going to get it from a lot of people. Just taking a survey. You just described an encounter I had with a staff member uh, just like two weeks ago about like a, a suggestion I was making. Yeah. And, uh, and she is very healthy. And so it was very much like, thank you. I'm gonna do it my way. Like I, you know, it was like anyway. It was. It was Thanks it was no, for your input. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't a uh, an angry thing or. A, yeah. It was just a very matter of fact, you know. Yeah. Uh, and so it was actually. I didn't. It didn't occur to me what that was until you just described how the six yeah. processes it. Why don't you take sevens? I think I mentioned it earlier, but for me, definitely when this started, where when she asked a question, you start with the numbers. I mean, it was like, man, there's a whole workshop we got to get together, Laura, on. Why each anagram number won't ask for help? Because that, that is what it boils down to. And for sevens, yeah. for me, it is, you mentioned one of the things, of like, what if I don't get the help? Yeah. Another one is that I'm incompetent. Another one is uh, I, don't, I don't need help. It's judging myself of like you, that, man, when I go to one of the, you should be able to do this, you can do this, or you're the one that got yourself into whatever situation you're in. Mm-hmm. You need to figure it out yourself. Yeah. It's a, it's an overly inappropriate reliance on independence. On you, yeah. You know, I, for me, it's almost like, what are we talking about? Like, <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and it's like so many times where Michelle has asked a very simple question. I'm literally listing off everything that stresses me out. And our staff members or our leaders or our friends and Michelle, the kids, the uh, they'll be like, hey, hey, how can we help? And I'm just like, I don't know what you're talking about right now. And so it actually just, even the, the need for help is so disconnected. Like, I, I, it takes me time to orient myself to even what we're discussing. It's kind of weird. I don't know if that's f- for all eights, but for me. Yeah, it's every eight I ever heard. <laughs> Giuseppe, why don't you take nines? My presence doesn't matter enough. To, <coughs> excuse me, to voice uh, a concern or a problem, it feels very uncomfortable to be so assertive as to say, "I need your help for this thing," or "I want your help with this kind of thing." Isn't it great that you have me? Because I already know what you need, and you don't have to ask. <laughs> Can I actually add something to the five? Please. If, I'm not sure if this is true of all fives, but I, I do feel like there's a, you know, this idea of diminishing your needs. So I think that, that kind of when, you know, Joel was saying, I was this idea that, no, I don't actually need it. Um, I think that's one way. And then the other part, I think, <laughs> this sounds really bad, was a calculation of like, oh my gosh, if I take the help, 
what do I have to give later? <laughs> so that's that. Yeah. Is there an expectation? So I have to give back. If you help me, I have to help you. Yeah. And I don't have the energy to do that. Yeah. Right? I think it's, yeah. do I, do we have the type of relationship where I can invest as much? Yep. Because I wouldn't, I would feel way burdened if I wasn't doing more yep. than what you're giving to me. So, you know, my mom was a five and she would not, my mom would not come hear me teach the Enneagram. She just wouldn't. If I did a women's retreat or I was given a keynote somewhere, she was all supportive. Enneagram, not touching it. And I just said, finally, it hurts my feelings. This is my most important work. It's what I love the most. Why won't you come? And she said, you already know more about me than I want you to know, and I'm not coming. And I said, your being there doesn't change what I already know about you. (laughs) But she did say to me, not knowing that, she goes to seven in stress, like n- nothing on board about all of that. And I said to her when she needed a lot of help, broken hip, at the, you know, like a lot of help. And I said, why is it so hard? You have, like y'all know I was adopted. Like she thought she was done with kids and my dad came home with wild idea one day that he delivered a baby they should adopt, right? So I wanted more than anything to be helpful to her. And uh, I said, why is it so hard for you to just trust that I want to help you? And she said, anytime I let somebody help me, it seems like I always do something really silly after that, and then I'm embarrassed. And that's a five move in distress. Uh, and I think, like, for Michelle, it's a, actually a, a double thing because of not only being a five but being a Korean. And that is, like, the idea of, like, reciprocity in Korean culture is very extreme. So when we got married, um, we, uh, kind of a crazy story, we had 1,500 people at our wedding. We didn't know any of them. It was both sides of the family just said, we're gonna go crazy and invite everybody. We had a, a table for the groom's side gift and then the bride's side gifts. And um, we had to get four vans, uh, two to go take all the gifts to my parents' house that were given by their friends. And then Michelle's mom needed the gifts from her friends and her side of the family, and they drove it to each other's house. And, and then I was like, this, this is our gifts. What are you doing? Like, this is, you should go to our apartment. And they're like, shut up. Uh, <laughs> they, 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 they took it, and then what they did was, okay, number two, open number two. What does the name say? Oh, Mrs. Kim? Uh, what did she give? Oh, it's 300 bucks. Oh, oh, 300 bucks. I'm like, what are you doing? And she's like, well, I can't go to their son's wedding in a year and give less than 300 bucks. Or it was at times even like, oh, 200. I gave that fool son 1,000, you know, like, like oh, we're going to get him back on the second kid then. Like, and it was like, I was shocked. And so there's this idea of like not wanting to be a burden. And so like if I pay, then you pay. If I pay, then so it's like a constant ping pong match. And Inviting 1,500 people seems risky. Yeah. That could be 3,000 weddings you got to go to, right? Yeah. That's fascinating to me. One of the things I wanted to bring up earlier, and I let it go, I'm not going to let it go again. Christine uh, has spent, your cousin Christine, a good bit of time uh, with us in Dallas. She's on our board, and... Um, She told me one day in the middle of a stressful 
time in the country and in the world, and I brought that up to see how different people in the room were responding. And she said that by their nature, Korean men, the ages of your fathers, are angry, regardless of Enneagram number. Is that true? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Is that exacerbated in eights, or is it just that's part of the reason maybe why I'm angry, but I'm not an angrier male eight because I'm Korean? This one's really hard to answer because I am an eight. And then also in South Korea, the, the further south you go, mm -hmm. the, the spicier they are. Mm -hmm. And so it's like the hotter the temper. And my, her dad and my dad are from the f southernmost tip of South Korea. So Spicy. it's water after that. So, <laughs> so it's like they, our families come from a region that's known for hot tempers. Like... And, and so I, I do think that um, some of it is definitely eight. And I, and I would say, too, that the, the one note, that, that one-dimensional feeling of just only having anger, mm -hmm. I definitely also a part of being um, a Korean-American man and a, or a Korean male because I've seen every number and all the men struggle with mm -hmm. anger. That's something we need to know in the world. We got another question coming here. I just wanted to really quick uh, kind of celebrate what you and the Reverend have done and the community that you set up because a few things happened there when you spoke up, Michelle. One was you asked, can I? I feel like there's the safety that Suzanne has given you in y'all's relationship and the space for you then to say, I actually do want to circle back then to that you said yes. You kind of talk about how when, Suzanne, we, uh, whenever we ask nines to speak up or whoever to, to be more assertive, mm -hmm. well, then you got to let them when they decide that they're going to. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, by all means. And then on your end, Michelle, and then you did it. And, and by the way, oh, my gosh, crushed it. So I just want to point that out. So I'm also a two, and I'm so thankful to be here, and I'm so thankful to LTM, and um, I'm here with my husband, and I feel like I'm copying you because I'm a two, and he's a nine, and our oldest daughter's an eight, so I relate to you guys thing. on so many levels. <laughs> but um, I actually have a question that piggybacks on your question. I'm so thankful you asked that question. I was wondering, in all your years of Enneagram experience, have you noticed a correlation between... Um, certain chronic illnesses and certain numbers in terms of how we process stress. Maybe we internalize it. We've been talking about stress a little bit tonight. Um, how we internalize things, how we ignore body cues. And I'm just wondering um, if you've noticed um, trends or correlations between certain numbers and being in stress, and then does that later maybe manifest in chronic illness? Not about chronic illness necessarily, but... Um Eights, nines, and ones have more gut trouble than the other numbers do. They are just people who have a lot of gut trouble. And it is, uh, I think, because they read the world. Richard Rohr says, 
offhandedly, but still, he says, you know, maybe the feeling numbers should have been eights, nines, and ones because they feel more than the rest of us do in terms of bodily. Five, sixes, and sevens have an awful lot of trouble with tension, with body tension. And I, and they're, they're always kind of working it out, you know. And twos, threes, and fours tend to have heart trouble. So that is a reality. Beyond that, I can't speak to that, but what I can give you is this. Uh, Joel's wife, Whitney, is a therapist. Her previous uh, specialty was in working with uh, adolescents with eating disorders. And um, she's doing general therapy now. But she has taught me so much about the Enneagram and relationship to our body. And um, Courtney Perry, who does the Enneagram also. And so we're beginning to do some conversations around and pulling together some, um, you know, potential programming and some maybe future work around uh, okay, what about the Enneagram and our bodies? And that's, I'm very, I was sexually abused as a 16-year-old and a foreign exchange student in another country. I have been and am still very disconnected from my own body, and that's work that I have to do. And so that's not mine to do. And I know it isn't, but that doesn't mean it's not LTMs to do. And so that's kind of where we are. I'm sorry I don't have a better answer. One resource that might be a little bit helpful, I don't remember it exactly, but on the table, if anybody subscribed to the table, one of the workshops is Breaking the Cycle. The full workshop is there, the video of it. And I want to say it was maybe on day three. Russ Hudson did a whole, he did a little bit of historical uh, information about the genesis of his Enneagram training yeah and how it was all body stuff at first and that it, they didn't even talk about these other things it was all and he talks about all these focal points of for these numbers it's i'm not gonna t say it's here here but he does it and he does the whole body scan like an enneagram body scan so you might check that out all right what you got you mentioned being adopted yes ma'am i'm adopted as well i'm a nine so i have a question about nature and nurture if you'd lived someplace else, if I'd lived someplace else, would we still be these numbers? Where is that? How does that work? Well, um, I used to say some fairly specific things about that that I can't prove, so I don't say them anymore because it just causes confusion and a lot of email for Joel and Laura. <laughs> I think we are born predisposed to be a certain Enneagram number. And I believe that our Enneagram number is well honed by the time we're five or six. Joel is more like Joe than he is like me. That's right. That's right. <coughs> and Joe adopted him when he was little bitty when we married. But nurture is really big. And... I don't know how anybody could prove that it's that you are the number you are when you're born. All I know is that we've been with all of our grandchildren except one when they were newborns. 
and they have kind of lived into their ways of being as newborns. And I think we would all, like I think, Alex and Michelle are both uh, children of first-generation Americans. And so immigrants, immigrants, you're first-generation, right, right? And um, so would they be different if they were a fifth generation? Maybe, but I think they would still be an eight and a five. And I can't prove that. So that's what I've got. And I do think as adopted humans, we look for ways to find a place to stand. And Ancestry right now, we just read that Ancestry, I read it in the New Yorker today, Ancestry is the second most popular thing Googled after porn <laughs> in the country. And that it's like everybody, it's the big hobby. Everybody's into it, right? Like it's a thing. And the more into it everybody is, the more we aren't sure where we have a place to stand. And that's just part of the reality of adoption. Also wanted to throw out something that y'all talk about in so many different uh, important spiritual matters, and that's the importance of mystery. And I think that the Enneagram isn't excluded from that. Yeah, it nails so many things, we want it to nail everything. And it can't. And so there are things that are just, we just have to live with mystery. Yeah. All right, you're enough. Man, I like that. I like the whole thing you got going on. Thank you. You look darling. <laughs> I'm a four. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have a question for Suzanne and for Alex. Um, like I said, I'm a four, and my lovely husband, Alex, is an eight also. Um, I have a question for both of you on balancing intensity, um, balancing managing not overwhelming other people with our intensity, but also, um, and each other, <laughs> but also um, managing the fact that that's still one of the most awesome things about us and one of the things we love most about each other. Well, my oldest daughter is a uh, four, and we were talking about this over dinner. Um, and so uh, she went to go study in London, uh, but she wouldn't, uh, she didn't apply, she wouldn't apply for her visa like just wouldn't do it, and and, I, and so in my head I was like, "Oh, you don't want to go, and you must feel burdened by us to go." And I, you know, I told her, "You don't, you don't have to go." And then she was so hurt because it was like um, she thought I didn't want her to go, or she thought that I thought she shouldn't go. And for me, it was like, "No, you're you're not getting the visa. Like they're not going to let you in the country." <laughs> um, and. But it was a it was a it was a really strenuous time in our relationship, because my doing dominant side was like, what are you doing? Like this is going to cost more money. You're creating more stress for yourself. And um, Michelle was like, back off, back off. And I was just like, <laughs> stop. Like I'm trying to talk to my daughter, you know. Like and um, and then uh, then we're in the heat of that struggle. Flew out to Dallas to be part of the co the contemplative spirituality cohort and a four who heard this story 
came up to me and said, you need to know, I want to share something with you. I'm a four. Fours, we think eights are superheroes. And like, for some reason, I needed to hear that. And, and I'm still almost processing, why did I need to hear that? I didn't actually never, I never asked the question, why did I need to hear that? Um, but then he said, uh, fours and eights, it can be really, really tough. But you just have to always try to find your connection back at justice and authenticity. And my daughter and I, we are two peas in a pod when we just keep staying in that justice and authenticity. Now, obviously, you're married. You can't restrict yourself to two ideas. It's not possible. But it, uh, I would say this, though. I, I go back to those two things to recenter my relationship with my daughter because we do go off track again. And the intensity strong. And I think, uh, and I actually would kind of defer to you because Lynn and I got in a huge fight like just before she went to Korea. And it was definitely like, um, I, I just, I, as an eight, had to, yeah, actually, I'll pause there. I don't, I, I don't have anything too insightful, but it was just justice and authenticity. When I pause, it, it almost like a magical reset for our relationship. What I would say is that people act like they want the truth. And they say, oh, just be honest with me. I really value honesty in a relationship. And they say, now listen, I'm going to ask you something. I want you to tell me the truth. They don't mean that. <laughs> and Except for eights and fours. And here's what you have in common that people know about eights to some degree but don't know about force, and that is that you don't either one really care what other people think. And that is a commonality that is not held by any other number. And so your motivation is never what will they think. It's always something deeper than that. And I think that's so rare in the rest of your relationships that you forget to get back to that with each other. And, and know, like, we can make independent decisions here. But it also plays out, and you also sometimes don't care what each other think. And that's where it's problematic in a relationship. So you have to have this caveat of the way we're put together, we don't really care what other people think. But I respect you, and I'm in an intimate relationship with you, so I'm going to try to lean into what you think without discounting it or without not caring. I think we have time for one more question tonight. Okay. Hi, Suzanne. Thank you. Hi. Um, my question kind of comes off of that nature versus nurture question. Um, having experienced a lot of childhood trauma, I had a really hard time for the last couple of years just trying to figure out what my number even was. And so how does that play into... Um, your motivation, because my motivation based on what my abusive father required of me and now not wanting to disappoint people today or, you know. I do know. So you want to tell me what number you think you might be? Well, for the last two years, I thought I was a two mm -hmm. um, because I do acts of service mm -hmm. um, as my way of expressing to people that mm -hmm. I appreciate them. But I, I'm always looking for that... Um, do you love me? Do you want me in your life? I, I try to ingratiate myself to them. Mm -hmm. But in the last, I don't know, month or two, I think I might be a one. Um, 
very, um, I don't know. I think I'm a one. Okay. Well, we're going to figure this out right now. Gosh, I feel like a magician who just said, I'm going to pull a rabbit out of this hat. <laughs> and what if there's no rabbit? <laughs> Since this is a live podcast and stuff, like maybe you could just go with it, and if I'm wrong, we can settle up later. <clears throat> Any of you who have experienced trauma, you know, there are a lot of people who come up to me and say, I was this number, and then I had this trauma, and now I'm this number. Not true. Like, you are the number you are. That, I'm sure of. <laughs> like, I don't know how we got this number, but it doesn't change. That I know. But what happens with trauma is that you spend much less time in average and healthy space and much more time in unhealthy space and excess in your number. And so what trauma means is that you still, you're the same number, but you have a deeper and longer journey to get to a place where you can stay in average or above average space for any period of time. So that's, we're going to silo that right here. Now, the next thing is that uh, a lot of children of adult alcoholics, a lot of adult children of alcoholics, uh, misidentifies ones because alcoholics meaning abusive parents because not all alcoholics are abusive parents like right you know what I'm talking about everybody else just listening in anyway um, <clears throat> because you figure out what the right thing to do is to avoid more trauma and then the world gets divided into good choices and bad choices. And there is only one right choice that prevents more abuse and more trauma. And that is very one behavior. So my suggestion for you to think about, and don't question it so much, just kind of try to live into this, is that you are very likely a two, but you have developed a really big one wing because as a two, you grew up in unsafe space where you had to know what the triggers were and what was going to keep you safe. And in figuring that out, you had to think like a one. Because it didn't matter if it was culturally right or wrong. It didn't matter if it was scripturally right or wrong or what they said at school is right or wrong. All that mattered is what the abusive parent says is right or wrong. And one's for ones, it's a bigger question than that. But for twos with a really big one wing, that wing gets so big that it may be a long time before your three wing develops because that's how you protected yourself. That's what I got. I've been dying to ask. Actually, this is even for Suzanne and for Joe. I think one of the beauties of life in the Trinity ministry is not just Enneagram work but that there is this contemplative spirituality piece to it. And because that was so formative for me as an eight in all the little nooks and crannies, do you find that there are spiritual practices, different spiritual practices for different numbers, or 
is it thinking about a spiritual practice differently? So I view it as centering prayer is my way of practicing trust. Or because I try to suggest it to Michelle on the way here, she was like, uh, "I was like, hey, you seem stressed about the podcast." And then I was like, "Why don't you do this little centering prayer thing?" And then, and she's like, "I'm, I'm gonna go take a nap. That's gonna, you know." Yeah. And I want to center myself I like, asleep. I was like, I. And I was like, you know, we can go to the office. She's like, that's not going to work for me. But, uh, yeah, are there different spiritual practices, or do we frame them differently so that we can draw from it regardless of our number? If anybody is ever talking to me about a spiritual practice, I am going to suggest that they do centering prayer. Of all of the spiritual practices that are possible, and there are manifold spiritual disciplines and spiritual practices. There is no other spiritual practice that allows us to be so open to the activity of God within us and the ability to experience what I would refer to as transformation by opening ourselves up to that power of the holy that is so intimately present to each and every individual as they can experience in centering prayer. Beyond that, uh, yes, I do think there are spiritual disciplines and spiritual practices that would help one number more than another number. There are certainly spiritual disciplines and practices that would help based on what stance you're in or if what is repressed of the thinking, feeling, and doing that help you bring up, as Suzanne teaches, where always trying not trying to push down but to bring up whatever is repressed in us or a spiritual practice that would try to help us to balance things in our life which is another element of Enneagram work and and so yes um, we do have some work it's on the table and other places uh, where we talk about Enneagram and spiritual disciplines and spiritual practices what I would say is that centering prayer is it. Like, that's the one. And after some experiences we've had in the last few years, we're not going to back off of that. So that's always going to be it. Do centering prayer, and then what are you going to do? My reasoning for centering prayer and several other uh, practices is slowing down. Not to build trust, necessarily, but it's like I've got to slow down. And those are some of the only ways for me to do that. I think for me, when it comes to centering prayer, what stood out when um, Joe spoke one time was um, he said, what happens during that time um, is, has, you can't think about it. You have to let it go. Like it's not, it's, yeah, it's, it's none of my business. That was for me transformative when I came to centering prayer because for me, I want to know everything and to be able to let go of that. So for him, it was trusting, but for me, it was, it was that being able to let go of not knowing what's going on. A beautiful way that you talk about that is you say that during that time, God is rearranging something inside of you, and you just have to create the space for God to do the rearranging. So I'm not going to run through the numbers because I'm guessing I don't have time, but look, Joe's over there saying, no, you don't have time. But here's what I would say. There is an inclination in all of us to choose spiritual practices that are um, uh, building what is already our dominant center. So that, that's a, oh, she doesn't like that answer at all. <laughs> like uh, on the front row, I got this. 
And then crossed her arms and sat back. I know. That, yeah. Like, yeah. Is she coming tomorrow? Are you coming tomorrow? Yeah. Okay, well, I hope you can behave yourself a little better tomorrow. Um, so you, you, you just can't lean into, oh, this is, this feels good. That's kind of not the point. So what you're looking for with a spiritual practice is a, is a practice that doesn't diminish your desire to, to do the things that you do in your dominant center, but that leads you from that center to your growing edge and your growing edge is where you are repressed. So fours, fives, and nines, regardless, of, have to do centering prayer. That's we don't have to, but we totally recommend it. And you can do a comfy thinking practice if you want to, but you have to. It, you would be wise to choose a spiritual practice that brings that you have to do something. Fours, fives, and nines need to bring up doing. And ones, twos, and sixes need to bring up thinking. So you can do all the feels kind of practices you want to do, but you need a practice also that helps you bring up thinking. And threes, sevens, and eights need to bring up feeling. And so along with, and you can do centering prayer and other practices at the same time, and when you choose practices, you should just always be sure that for part of a year at least, you have a practice that leads you to the edge where you're uncomfortable. So two examples from me are I read people that I don't necessarily agree with because that brings up thinking for me. People I agree with just makes me feel good, right? <laughs> and um, you've probably heard me say this, but I, I listen to people who I don't agree with because that makes me think if my goal is to think about how I can find common ground, not if I can continue to think, what an idiot, and I'm right. So I, I, I think we have to choose the edge, and it's okay to be comfortable in your dominant center. I have one question that I've been wanting to ask all day, and then I'll let you either finish with a question or whatever. We got feedback from someone who uh, purchased one of the Enneagram Daily Reflection Series books. Uh, it happened to be the one written by an Enneagram 7, Gideon Sang, and the person was really bummed about how much he talked about his culture. That what, And really bummed is being kind. Like The person was a little rude, and uh, why would I want to read this? I wanted, can y'all answer that question why it's important like one of the things that ivp did with this series was it's a diverse group you know whenever the topic of culture comes up it's a challenge for me personally because and it's for cultural reasons i was taught uh and raised to you diminish yourself in the light of community you know so it um your needs, your wants, whatever it is, the individual must decrease uh, so that the cause of the community can can flourish. And obviously, uh, and so for me, um, the cultural questions are always challenging because I don't know 
it's like sometimes I'm Korean and I'm American. Korean is my ethnicity. American is my nationality because I was born in the States. And so sometimes culture can feel like a fish describing water, right? Because it's just the context in which you grew up in and then it's, it's hard for me to discern. And so I kind of almost disengaged and also I was, and again, I was raised to just, just squash it, you know? And, but I, I do feel like it, I personally do believe it is important because um, it's just the, it's part of the story that like God decided to make us a number and then he decided to place that number in a context. And I think that that's where all the engagement happens and the, the nuances start to emerge if we pay attention to those things. But I would say this, until I moved to Portland, I didn't pay attention to my culture uh, because I was around so much diversity in other areas where now we're eight, there, there are not a lot of Asians in Portland. And I find myself actually going back and asking. So I'm on the front end of, even though I'm 46, I feel like I'm, in some ways I'm beginning that journey to explore it now because I do feel the differences uh, being in a city that doesn't have as many Asians, say, as, uh, as LA d does. And so I don't know if that answers your question, but I, I do think it's important. But it, I, I'm on the front end of exploring that. I think when it comes to culture, I think one of the beautiful things about the Enneagram is this idea that it, you know you want to be able to have empathy for other people, right? There's it's a it's a self awareness tool. And it's helpful for yourself, but when it what I've always viewed it as something that when you see other everything else, like everyone else out there, you just realize that they're different and they come from a different space. And for me, I just I would think that the cultural aspect is also a part of that. So if, if we're studying the Enneagram together and, and doing these things and working in this way where we want to be open to the fact that there are different people out there with different views of the world and different perspectives, I just feel like culture is, I mean, it, it's a natural part of that, right? Where, but So I, I, I guess for me, I'm not seeing where that disconnect would be. If anything, I just feel like that would just bring more of what we're trying to learn Decide the Enneagram, so, and I know that's a more generic answer, but I guess, yeah. The only thing I would add to that is that I'm from a, a farming and ranching rural culture, and my responses are different, but that's my context. That's the container I grew up in, and so that's where I speak from, as opposed to somebody who grew up in the city. So, right, like it's, we have a lot of difference, which makes the Enneagram to me even more mystical because it covers a great deal of it. And now we get to learn nuance. And that's exciting. Okay, here's my closing question. What are you curious about? I think for me, the Enneagram is such a blessing because it, it, it explains so much. But it doesn't necessarily solve it, right? So it's in, in some ways, uh, I think when I, now that I see more color, mm -hmm. um, sometimes, sometimes I feel very optimistic because the, even a tool like the Enneagram is like meant for us to have compassion for other people. But then at the same time, it, like the pandemic has, just the, and you know, people talk about all the time, we're, we are polarized and there's so much division 
So I, I'm curious about how are we gonna make this all work? Um, because sometimes it feels impossible. I would say it feels more impossible than possible at times. And like, so even for my family, we never talked about politics. Never, until four years ago, where you know my dad of a certain political persuasion made it known. I need this whole family to vote a certain way. And it just, it was like a, a shock. So I, I'm, I almost felt like sucker punch because we never had that conversation as a family. And so I'm kind of curious, how then are we going to rebuild um, knowing all the differences and trying to hold that, hold all the pieces together? I would just say too that from what my understanding is, is in a culture that has great respect for your elders. So that makes it even trickier, yeah. Um, what I'm curious about, I, I think when it comes specifically to the Enneagram, I think um, the thing that I've been, in my mind, it's been going again and again is, it, it's such a wonderful tool, but it seems so, um, gosh, I don't wanna say slow, because that makes it sound like negative, but it, but it is, it, it's a, it's a long process, and it's and it's a personal process in some sense, or maybe that's just because I'm a sexual like five. But it's a it's a walking alongside process in a world that's like going fast, and I'm just wondering what how that how that fits into today's world, and how to not rob it of the essence of and the beauty of that that tradition and the. Um, yeah, so I think that's been something that's I've been really curious about. Like, where, how does that work, um, like practically? And then I think, as far as especially with the pandemic and everything, the world has become very global, and it's really, ironically, made me think a lot more about um, what's outside of Western culture, and how for me, I'm really curious to see where the world is like whereas I feel like the Western culture has in some sense kind of dominated culture in the world whereas I feel like is there going to be a shift where there will be a little bit more of a melting pot and and how so that that's also been a curiosity so I've been kind of side by side but also it kind of overlaps in certain ways so those are the things that I've been just thinking about. great I've never done this what are you curious about We'll have to answer that sometime when we're not 20 minutes over. <laughs> so, well, it's going to come around. Uh, it'll happen. I uh, so hope that your life and your interest means that you're going to be with us tomorrow. If not, uh, know that you'll be missed, with one exception. So, uh, um, gosh, thank you for hosting us. And Yeah, thank yeah. you, Alex and Michelle. <laughs>